It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, man. All right. Hey, it's good to see you. Go ahead and come on in and make yourself comfortable. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 2, because that's going to be the passage that's going to launch us today. Genesis 2. And as you're turning there, there is a statistical survey that's released every year that I've been following the last two or three years. I find it kind of fascinating, really. It is a report on how employees waste time at work. <laughs> I think the most fascinating thing about the survey is they actually think people are going to be honest when they fill out the reports because there's no way people are being straight up with how they are wasting time at work. So I understand these statistics are not going to be dialed in with reality, but if they're wrong, they're wrong on a conservative end. Can we agree on that? It's probably worse than what people are saying. 2015, 89% of American employees polled, 89%, reported wasting time on a daily basis beyond what would be given to them in a break. 89, 9 out of 10 are wasting time is what they're saying, right? When they broke the numbers down, 31%, that's almost one out of three, 31% reported wasting around, around an hour a day. An hour a day. Some of you are doing math in your head right now, right? An hour a day is almost 240 hours a year. That's about six weeks. Six work weeks worth of wasted time, and that is one out of three. 26% reported wasting at least two hours a day, at least two hours a day. So think around 500 hours wasted per year. That is 12 and a half work weeks per year. That is amazing. That is a lot of wasted time. I've been fascinated with reports like this because it shows me what my heart wants to do. It just reveals my heart. I mean, we've been going through this series called Having Without Owning. And the whole idea behind this quick little series we're jumping in and jumping out of is the idea that God owns everything. He is the owner and he gives us things, mandates that we steward them well, that we manage them well for his glory, not our own, right? Yet, because we are who we are genetically, we break things. We break the things that he gifts us to manage, and we end up ruling and owning them for our glory, not his. Two weeks ago, we looked at how we own instead of manage and steward our life's direction and our ambitions. Last week, we looked at our body. Today, I'd like to look at work, because we're in a day and age now, probably for the first time in the last three generations, where we work more than we sleep. It's a pretty significant amount of our time. And listen, I don't want you to distance yourself some of you are already tempted to do this. I don't want you to distance yourself if you don't clock in and work for the man every day, okay? If you were homeschooling kids, you were laboring in a, in a difficult sphere. If you're a student, you're working, you're keeping, you're nurturing your environment. All of us in here are creating and working. The principles that work for the nine-to-fiver will work for you if you're schooling your kids at home or if you're keeping a home together, which is incredibly difficult, all these principles should stick to you. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look in Genesis 2, the second chapter. Flip to Genesis 2, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 3. This is something that you've heard many times if you've grown up in the Word. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all of his work he had done in creation. So here we see God putting the finishing touches on creation. He's tying it all up in a bow. He worked. Now he's resting, right? 
But he's not just resting. He's taking man and putting man in a place where man works before he rests. We're seeing a mimicking of the role of man after what God has done. Look at Genesis 2.15. So scan down just a few verses. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and keep it. So the first thing we see before we even get out of the gates is work is a gift and God wills us to work. Work is a gift and God wills us to work. Adam was a worker, an employee of sorts. He had dominion over all of creation. He collected creation. He organized creation. He nurtured creation. And get this, it was easy for him. Work was easy. It was a joy because there was no sin attached to it yet. You see, I can't even talk to you about work without immediately images coming up in your mind that think of the pain and the toil and the hardship that comes by work. We don't even know what work looks like with no sin attached to it. But consider what it looked like for Adam, what it would look like for us with no sin. We would have no office politics, no backbiting, no envy, no deadlines at our heels, no lies or even half-truths, no anxiety around the corner, no issues with the boss, no fear of layoffs, no fatigue, no red tape, no bad Christmas parties, none of it. We've never known work like this. This is an easy way to think of work, and it might reshape it for many of you. This is what John Piper says uh, regarding these two verses in work, and we'll put it up on the screen. He says, God takes man on as his deputy. Remember that word, deputy, and endows him with godlike rights and capacities to subdue the world, to use it and to shape it for good purposes. At the heart of the meaning of work is creativity. That's another big word for us. If you are God, your work is to create out of nothing. If you are human, your work is to take what God has made and shape it and use it for good purposes. We're deputies. We've been deputized, not to create things out of thin air, but to take what is around us, the material world, creation, and form something, organize, collect, keep. This is what he has called us and willed us to do. We just take what's around us. Take the brain that he has given us, and we produce. We make bridges over rivers. We make pies, right? We make vehicles, apps for your phone. We make more pies. We make all kinds of things, music videos, budgets. We make touchdowns. We make all kinds of things. You know, certainly some work to us right now seems more important than other forms of work. It'd be easy for us to immediately think that some elite politician that is meeting in rooms with, with rare air, meeting with other politicians in, in over subjects that we would never even have clearance to hear, that maybe their work is more important than someone who is making a pie or making a cupcake. But work is work. Right? There's, there's a guy I'm fascinated with. Um, he's 25 years old. His name is Felix lives in Sweden, Felix Kelberg. The reason you've probably never heard of this name or this guy is because that's not really the name that the world knows him by. He is known as PewDiePie, right? PewDiePie is his screen name on YouTube. He is the most subscribed to YouTube channel on earth. 
and he has been for many years. I don't subscribe to him, but I've been following his progress and reading and keeping up on what he is doing because he fascinates me. He has, as of this morning, 41.5 million subscribers. So the PewDiePie nation is bigger than Canada. It's bigger than Australia. And so what happens is, is he is so popular, YouTube being brilliant, they say, let's sell advertising on PewDiePie's channel. But to keep PewDiePie making videos so that they could sell more advertising on it, they write a check and send it to Felix every month, right? Last year, he made no less than $7.4 million as a YouTuber, sitting in his boxer shorts right there in his own living room, right? What kind of videos does he make that are so important, you ask? I'll tell you. He plays video games, primarily. He does other things, but primarily he's known for playing video games and giving commentary as he plays them. Are you tempted to think that that's not work? Tempted to think that that's not really laboring and and toiling? Because you could find him and ask him in one of his four homes, he would disagree. He is working. He is working. Maybe it's not as important, but he's creating, he's taking video content, he's taking skill, He's taking a personality that he has. He's leveraging his capacity to sell um, real estate for advertising. He's doing all kinds of things. He is creating and nurturing, whether it's important or not. There's a book called Culture Making where uh, the author Andy Crouch, he makes the argument that as sub-creators, and I like that phrase even better than deputy, as sub-creators, we do a better job of imaging God when we create culture instead of mimicking copying or critiquing. When we create it, we actually look more like the God who created us. Obviously not creating things out of thin air, but creating things with the creation around us that has been given to us. Taking eggs and making omelets. Taking songs and making symphonies. Taking videos and video games and making 41.5 million subscribers. Remember several months ago, referring to this story in another sermon going in another direction about me and my son finishing a long day of lawn work, right, which East Tennessee has been very gracious to give us. So we're burning sticks that fall out of the trees. It's endless, right? We're pulling weeds. They're endless. We're mowing the lawn. We're moving bricks. We're moving stones. We're keeping, we're tending a very broken garden. And at the very end of the day, when we're standing in the driveway, there's this sense of accomplishment, you know? There's a sense of, man, I've done this. And I told him, I said, take a big whiff, son. You know what that smell is? It's the smell of dominion over creation, you know? He thinks I'm such a nerd. He just smells B.O. and grass, you know? But there's something satisfying about that, that you were created to feel that satisfaction because it's beautiful when we tend our respective gardens. You see, work is more than just clocking in. I hope you see that now. Work is more than just clocking in with a name badge on your door or on your desk. John Piper calls it a a deputized function. Andy Crouch says that we're sub-creators. Either one of those work. I just see work as a very brilliant idea. Whether you're a student or a mom, work is a brilliant idea, and therefore it's good for us. It's good for us. It's not, it's not evil. It's not evil. But we broke work. And the story of man going all the way back to Adam, we broke work. We broke our relationship with God. And so now the gardens that we tend, they're broken gardens. 
They're not whole like they used to be. We see this in Genesis 3. So look at Genesis 3, verse 17. And this is a very, very not chipper part of the Bible. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You want to hear the summary of that? The summary of this is you will work, that work will be hard, and then you will die. Genesis 3. You will have difficult work, and then you're going to die. It's actually a reversal of creation. Creation was where man was going to live forever, and work was going to be easy. No thorns or thistles. No point point of, of, of really stressing about work or getting up and struggling with your employees or your coworkers. It would have been easy, but there's been a reversal on it, and now man won't have joy. It will be difficult. There will be thorns and thistles. Even if you like your job, you have to admit there's parts of your job you don't like and then we will die. Thorns and thistles, is a, that's, that's the catchphrase for me in this passage. That's the new native product of the land. <laughs> you know, Adam has spoiled his environment. And as he strains under sin, and creation strains under sin, they will all turn back to dust. But even in this passage, you see grace. You see the phrase, eating the plants of the field, Right? This um, implies, and it kind of points to, it expects that Adam and Eve will be expelled and pushed out of the garden to toil as a farmer outside of a blessed land, right? So you can almost envision them tromping out of the garden with everything beautiful behind them and everything difficult in front of them. And even still in this moment, God has grace on us because he gives us an ability to derive sustenance from the land. You'll eat. You'll eat. You will have increase, but it's going to come with a lot of sweat and a lot of blood and a lot of tears, which is what we see today. So we have two juxtaposed truths. Hopefully you've seen this so far in the short amount of time we spent on this. Work is cracked by the fall. Work is cracked and broken by the fall, yet it's a gift to us. It's a gift. Both are true. So work isn't evil. It's just going to be hard. That's biblical. Your job, your class load, Keeping the home, that's not evil. It's just going to be hard. There's a theology of work. If we have this, we'll put it up on the screen as, as well. This is something that, as I looked and studied, I thought I could put it together in maybe one sentence because some of us need to swap out a real cruddy theology of work that we have and put something in that at least rhymes or looks like this. Labor and creative effort will have thorns and thistles. Yet we're called to imitate our creator as deputized sub-creators, bringing dominion and creativity around us for our good and his glory until he returns to what? Remove all the thorns and thistles. It's the biblical theology of work, I guess, in a nutshell. You know, in Texas, I grew up most of my life in Texas, we had something a bit more insidious than thorns and thistles. We had cactus needles, right? That's a party you don't want to go to. (laughs) Cactus needles are different because... 
even the ones you can see, if you were to brush up against them, and I would as a novice trail runner and a clumsy hiker, always bumping into cactuses, always touching them on accident. I know it sounds odd. It's not that hard to do, actually. And when you look, you can't see most of the needles. They're hair-like. I mean, they're just, you can barely see them. You need a flashlight. Some of them you can see, but you don't dare pull those out with your hands because those have like micro needles, and they get your fingers as you're trying to pull them out. So over time, after bumping into many of them, I had to learn how to remove cactus needles from my skin. I'm about to serve you really well, so listen up. I'm going to save you a ton of heartache, okay, if you ever bump into a cactus. Step one, this, I'm not making this up. Step one, you get glue, like household Elmer's glue, and you pour it, and just kind of squeegee it on your skin, wherever the thorns are. Kind of like you did in elementary school, remember? Making that skin, oh, look, my skin's falling off. Remember that? It's that act. <laughs> you let it dry, and then you pull it off. And by God's grace, those needles are in that glue and not in your arm anymore, your leg. By God's grace, okay? But it typically doesn't happen, so you go straight to, to step two. Step two is you do the same thing with duct tape. Because why not, right? So duct tape goes on, and at that point, you start to, I don't know, reimagine why you were even in the place where there was a cactus. You start to <laughs> engage that whole moment all over again. And when you rip it off again, by God's grace, those needles are in there. But oftentimes that doesn't get them all. Step three is tweezers, right? Old faithful tweezers. And that's when you celebrate with God how minute and detailed his creation is, how excited you are to be a part of it. And that never gets it out. I've gone through steps one through three so many times. I always end up at step four, which is you've pretty much given up and you sand it off, you buff them off, right? So you take a pumice stone, or I've even used sandpaper like on my feet when I've stepped on a couple, it was awesome. And what you do is you sand the needles off so what's above the skin goes away, what's below the skin stays there until your body's ready to get rid of it. That's how you get rid of cactus needles. You're welcome. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? I think it's probably easier to get rid of cactus needles and the thorns and thistles in our skin than it is in our work. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that most of you would rather take a cactus to the head than deal with the thorns and thistles that you have in your workplace, whatever your broken garden looks like. Let me ask you a couple questions. How do you glorify God in a job full of needles and thorns and thistles? How do you do that, you, individually? not philosophically, especially in a job that seems meaningless, insignificant. You work at the last desk in the last room on the last hall of the last floor of the last building that no one even goes to. You show up to parties, and when you're done telling somebody what you do for a living, they just stare at you because they don't even know what you're talking about. It doesn't feel like it's contributing anything to the grand scheme of things. What do you do in a job where after you work and toil and work and toil, it seems like you're creating more mess than you started with, right? What is your theology of work? You see, we break work as people, and I'd like to talk about a couple ways in which we do that very briefly. And listen, I'm aware that the last couple weeks, I've, I've gone overboard in breaking up all of humanity into two kinds of people. I understand we're a bit more complex than that, right? I know there's more than two kinds of people in the world, but it's a, it's a helpful way to teach because we usually find ourselves slipping towards one or the other, and it helps us see the failures in our life. But many of us, we over-promote work to glorify ourselves, and then many of us, we 
demote and underpromote work in order to glorify ourselves. We either run to the time clock and punch in as fast as we can for our own glory, or we avoid it and call in sick for our own glory. We're going to find ourselves in one of those camps faster than the other. So I'd like to look at these just briefly. I'd like to look at those of us who abuse God's gift by overpromoting work in order to secure things for our own glory. So you might say, without even thinking, you might say with your mouth or with your heart, I'm working hard right now because I need work to give me some things. There's some things I need work to provide for me. And the usual suspects are identity and security. Those are the usual suspects. It might be different in your case, but that usually knocks out about 95% of us. Identity and security. This is the genesis of overworking. And listen, it'd be helpful right now at this point to say there's a difference between overworking and working long hours, okay? There's nothing sinful about working long hours. There is something sinful about overworking. You could work long hours, more than 40, and 40 is not a biblical standard, by the way. That's created by the American culture. So if you're working more than, if you work 42 hours, you're not sinning in, in overwork. But you could be if you're trying to secure something in that work that God has already given you. That's what overwork is. Overworking is when you're working and toiling, or you're in school and you're studying, or you're doing things with your kids in homeschool, and your whole object, or at least an undercurrent, is I need this to deliver something to me. I need my kids to turn out a certain way. I need my projects to turn out a certain way. I need my grades to turn out a certain way because it will make me look a certain way, or it will give me security to some degree. Now, that's overworking. You could work 70 hours a week and not overwork, just be working long hours. And you could work 40 hours a week and be overworking in a heartbeat. So it's important to know that they're not the same thing. And how do you separate the two, by the way? How do you know? Just ask yourself the question, honestly. Be honest with yourself. Why am I doing this? Why am I clocked in right now? Why am I pressing so hard? Am I trying to get something? What are you trying to get? This is something a little bit more than a paycheck. You're trying to make a name for yourself. Get ahead. Cram more wheat in your silos. Collect more resources to save you as time goes out. Maybe you want your name and, and your name tag to look a bit better the next conference you're at. Several reasons that we could be doing this. Why? Because if there is work behind your work, you are overworking. Overwork is when there is work behind your work. When you're managing your workload for your own glory, you're stealing that glory from the Lord. And this is not a small problem. I'm telling you because I'm president of this club of the overworkers. Right? So I'm with you if you are there. But it is tantamount to standing at the line and telling Jesus, you've done a great thing on the cross. You've given me a beautiful identity, Lord. You've clothed me with your perfect life, Live and you've given me security because that can never be taken away. What you've done is so incredible, but it's not cutting it for me. It's not satisfying me, and you really are dropping the ball. I need other things to give me the identity and the security I really need. And I think this nine to five job could do it. If I just do this a little differently, do that a little differently, I will finally get what my heart needs. That's what we're doing, and that's a sin. It's a sin at the most basic gospel level. It's not a weakness. It's a sin. And not just for us who are clocking in and clocking out or have salaries. It's a sin if we're a stay-at-home mom, homekeeper. It's a sin if we are a student. I send my way straight through college doing this. It's possible. 
I think we can also, I think we also can abuse God's gift to us by neglecting it for our glory. Now I'm swapping all the way to the other end of the scale, right? This person says in their heart, I'm going to avoid work because I've seen those thorns and thistles and they're a bit abrasive and they hurt. And if I just avoid it, then I can collect comfort for myself for my glory. Again, something that would never come out of our mouth, but it's coming right out of our lives. Also, not a small problem. If you look at Exodus 20, this is a famous passage. We're going to look at the back door of this passage. It says this in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And most of the times you see this preached or taught, it's because of the Sabbath. The focus is on the Sabbath. I would like to bring your attention to verse 9 where it says, Six days you shall labor. Six, that's a mandate. It's a mandate. Six days you shall labor. You shall spend a considerable amount of your time laboring. It's very easy for many of us to just abdicate that, abandon the mandate to labor because we are so intent on collecting comfort. It's easier. You see, underworking, it fails to trust the Lord, just like overworking does. They just do it in different directions. Overworking doesn't trust the Lord is good enough to supply an identity and a security. Underworking does not trust the Lord is good enough to supply comfort. Just comfort and peace. You see, now that it's new 2016, it's great for a guy like me because all the new 2015 statistics are out, right? Last year, and the number's been going up and up and up every year, guess what the average age of the American gamer is now? 31. 31. You want to know it's even more freaky than that? There are more gamers over the age of 50 than under the age of 18 for the first time. Over the age of 50. Then under the age of 18, it's a lot of gamers. It's a lot of gamers. And actually, there's almost as many women as men now. 48% of all gamers, as of 2015 in America, 48% are women. Only 52% are men, right? What's fascinating to me is not just the direction of the age, but the direction of the distraction of the gaming world, right? Back in 1990, I was like the last on the block, I think, to get my Nintendo home entertainment system but I got it, and I would come home from school, no cell phones, no pagers back then or anything. I was just a freshman, I think. Freshman, I don't even know. I was young, and I remember doing work every day, homework, in my living room, but calling my name from the living room was Mike Tyson's punch out, and today was the day I was knocking that clown out. You know what I'm saying? Today is the day I'm going to do some punch out. It was a distraction always. But I had to go through things to get to that distraction. I'd have to get home. I'd have to hope that no one else was watching the only TV in the house, right? I'd have to get the game out and blow in the cartridge and bang the dust out, which I didn't really let there be dust on that game, you know what I'm saying? Because there wasn't a whole lot of games out back then. I would put it in the, the system and put another one on top of it to jam it in there because it would glitch out every now and then. It was a lot of work to get to Mike Tyson. Now we could just all bring out our phones right now. A couple touches instant game. We're playing with people all over the world. The distraction has evolved. Why is this important? Because life is hard. I mean, life is cold. And problems exist that won't get solved. And there's thorns and there's thistles every moment pushing in. And we just feel like, I just need to get away from it all. I need a release. I need to stop working. It's too hard. I can crush some candy instead. 
could line up some candy for 92 levels, and then I'll get back to work. I can RPG something and blow it up. I could build a fake universe with poorly pixelated blocks for hours and hours on end. I can escape from reality and from work because it is comfortable here. It's very uncomfortable working. Listen, some of you are getting uncomfortable right now. I don't know that I'm going to balance this. If you were spending an inordinate amount of time retreating, retreating from your respective garden so that you can bury yourself in a game or bury yourself in Netflix, that is not a weakness, that is a sin. And I know some of you are just ready to email me with how your situation is different. Don't. I won't look at it. Okay? 26% are saying that they waste at least two hours, at least two hours a day on work. That's called inordinate. I think one hour is inordinate. If you are abandoning your respective garden to escape, you need to take a hard look, a very, very, very hard look at what your heart is doing. What I want to show you, and what I hope is obvious right now, is that the gift of work to us in our respective gardens is easy for us to break. It's easy for us to break. We, that's what we do with God's things. He gives us a gift, we break it. Gives us marriage, we break it. Gives us the church, we break it. Gives us spiritual gifts, we break it. Gives us Jesus, we break him. We break his gifts, right? But because of Jesus' life and because of his sacrifice, we benefit. We break him with our hands. And because he loves us and pursues us, we benefit. I mean, think about this. This is the gospel of work. Jesus worked hard in a broken garden he didn't break. He lived a perfect life in this cursed experience that we have with thorns and thistles and toil and pain and sweat. He experienced it all. And he did it so passionately that he bought us a rest, which we will talk about in a future point, that rest that is purchased. This is important because when God did this, it changes us from the inside out. You see, our nature has changed. A new heart, a dead one that was made of stone, is discarded, and a new one that is beating and living and responsive is installed. And we understand as Christians, and we grow more as Christians, when we're saying to ourselves, my old heart needed this, but my new heart only needs this. What I mean by that is, is in your old life, before Jesus, and some of you are there right now because you don't have Jesus, your life needs identity. So you start looking around in a panic and grabbing things that could give you an identity. My body, my money, my time, my pedigree, my anything, my work, right? That's what we do. But when God changes your heart, you say, I don't have to do any of that. I don't really need any of that because I've been given an identity that's very satisfying already. I mean, I could just work to the glory of God. I don't need to work for my own glory anymore. I don't need to, I don't need to do that. I've been gifted an identity and a value that can never be topped. Our old heart would say, I need comfort. So I'm going to do all kinds of things to collect comfort to myself. A new heart says, God has given me comfort because at any moment, all I have to do is remind myself that I'm sitting at a table that I don't belong at and no one's going to take my seat. I have this place secured. I will be here forever. That's what a new heart says. And God changed our heart from the inside out. Our very nature has been changed and no longer 
Are you bound to your flesh to do whatever it's telling you to do? You are free to be joyful sub-creators. You are free to be joyful deputies of God's creation around you as you create image-bearing at its best. So some very quick application before we get out of this. How then do we keep our broken gardens? This is not an exhaustive teaching on us. It's just a few notes that I noted when I was putting this together. I think first thing that we do is we do it thankfully. Thankfully. Thank God for the broken garden that is before you. I know that sounds odd, but it's not by any mistake that you're there. It's by no mistake that you were there. God sovereignly placed you in that place at that time with those circumstances for you to tend it, work it, keep it for his glory, not yours. You are a manager and a steward, not an owner, right? Thankfully, do you ever thank God for that gift? Do you ever take the time to say, God, I don't understand this, and the thorns are ticking me off, and I'm just waiting for casual Friday to come because, my gosh, you know, this is just too much. If that is, can you just at least, at least in that moment as you're struggling, just stop and say, but... I know you're teaching me how to do this better. You're teaching me how to do this for your glory. Thankfully. Can you do it thankfully? Excellently. Do the best job possible in your broken garden. Here's the phrase and the passage that you guys have been waiting for. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, who is the best boss in the world. So what does that look like to work excellently? What does it look like? Well, it means erasing the shortcuts. Not being a statistic where you're wasting an inordinate amount of time at your employer's job or in your garden just to get away from it all. It means not showing up late and leaving early. It means not watching YouTube all the time. You know, there was another study I read. I almost didn't bring it up, but it's just fascinating to me. In Plano, Texas, there is a service center or a headquarters for J.C. Penney. And a few years ago, in one month, 5,000 employees watched 5 million videos on YouTube in one month while they were working on work hours. 5 million views during work hours by only 5,000 employees. I don't think there's 5,000 people that shop at J.C. Penney, you know? <laughs> I haven't bought anything there in forever. But out of all the employees, that is a lot of views. Are you that person? Be excellent. Don't just be thankful. Be excellent. That's a different sermon in all of itself. But also be missional because working has implications for a lost city. I want you to just for a minute, you're working shoulder to shoulder with people, right? People who are laboring even behind their labor. They're there to make the same paycheck you are, right? but there's also a labor inside of them to be right with God. They're working, they're straining, they're twisting, contorting to be right with God. That's a different labor altogether, is it not? I mean, there's no work like salvation work. It's the hardest work in the world. That's why Jesus came, because it's actually impossible for us. That's who you're working next to. It's a beautiful missional thing for them to slam into the same thorns and thistles you do and see a very different reaction extracted from you. Whenever you can look like the one who created you as a sub-creator and as a deputy, that plays out in living color. I saw Christians when I was lost, and it made a huge difference in me. 
In fact, when I was a young Christian and I was preaching it, anything and everyone that was alive, they had a pulse, man. I'm telling them about Jesus as much as I can. Most of my fruit was in work because I'd have employers say, look, your work has changed. Just your work has changed before they even knew I was a Christian. Some of you have experienced the exact same thing. Working has implications on a lost city. And then lastly, and that, I, I think this would fit under mission, but it's a different kind of mission. I think we need to work benevolently. When we increase through the pain and the toil, when we increase, can we spread our increase for those who toil yet are not able to increase? What I mean is, is there are people that work their tail off and they can't find increase. War, disease, something like that. Something like a tragedy that pulls them out, right? I think this is important for us as a church because God in his mercy wills that the work of the able body in good prosperous times is able to help those who work in very difficult times. It's part of our calling as a church. If you read Acts 2, you see it very quickly, very quickly. They were benevolent employees. They were benevolent workers. Acts 20, we see this. So in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I hope you see that we have a new heart because of what God has done, his work for us. He has worked perfectly for people who are not able to work very well. He has done salvation work for people who cannot save themselves. And he did so in our broken and cursed experience to provide for you and me a rest. That should change the way we work. It should change our very view of work. Go ahead and stand with me. I love, I love finishing a sermon with just a glimpse towards the future, right? And we have one given to us in Romans 8, 19. I'm just going to read it to you because it, it preaches itself. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, there will be a day, and I can't wait for it to come, when all thorns and thistles will be gone, and you won't return to dust. No more dust, no more pain. The, the globe will creak no longer under the strain of what we have done to it. Work will be like it was in the garden, except it will be in a better city. We'll be able to work. I think we will be employing ourselves and be sub-creators even in heaven. And that's a different subject all in itself as well. But I think we will do it without the, the, the pain of sin attached to it. I think it will look a lot like it did for Adam in the garden as he collected and organized, intended something with no sin attached to it. I look forward to that day. But until that day, we have a beautiful opportunity now, don't we? We have thorns and thistles around all of us, pain, sweat, and toil. And yet, we get to manage this experience for another's glory, for another's glory, amen? All right, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. 
I thank you for your goodness that you show us what work is supposed to look like. You don't just show us what marriage is supposed to look like, and you don't just show us how our mouths are supposed to be handled or our eyes, but even work, even how we look like tending a garden that is very broken and is full of needles and thorns and thistles and pain. Father, we live in a land that does not yield up its strength, but Lord, you yielded up your strength for our benefit and provided a rest for us. For that, we're thankful. And Lord, as much as I complain and as much as I whine about the things that are difficult in my garden, I'm thankful for it. Thank, thank you, God, for putting me in a place, for putting me in a place where I can take my heart to task and say, you don't need that identity, comfort, security, glory. You don't need it. You already have it. God's already given it to you. God, you've made us free to be employed by you for your glory and not our own. And Lord, I pray for the hearts in here who are striving not just to get a paycheck, but they're striving to be paid by you, Lord, by you, that you would just give them righteousness because they act a certain way or perform or behave a certain way, a works-based righteousness. That is difficult work. No man has been able to do it. Only the God-man, only you coming to earth and doing something brilliant for us provides a way for us. And that you would be changing hearts today to stop working, to stop working and begin resting in an eternal Sabbath, an eternal rest. Lord, I pray for that to happen today. Lord, you're so good to us. We thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.